This episode of The Swell Pod is brought to you in partnership with Kiln. Kiln provides flex office space for teams and individuals. Their all-inclusive set of amenities helps startups, creatives, and entrepreneurs alike get work done. Learn more about Kiln at kiln.co. What does it take to create something that never existed before? What does it take to challenge the status quo? What does it take to change the world? This is The Swell Podcast. We're passionate about the seed of an idea and how it swells into a movement. Take a journey with us as we seek the answers to those three questions through the stories of thought leaders, world builders, game changers, disruptors, and other pleasantly rebellious humans who ventured out into the unknown on a personal journey to do something novel, innovative, creative, or disruptive. Spencer? Wow, that was impressive. One breath. <laughs> One breath. <laughs> oh my goodness. Look, today we've got a really uh, great, great person called Dr. Taylor Sparks. Um, and he's an associate professor and director of the materials characterization lab at the University of Utah. Uh, he did his PhD in applied physics at Harvard University, like you do, and hosts a popular YouTube channel and podcast entitled Materialism. He's an avid canoer. I think he's also a beekeeper, but he loves to spend time with his uh, children in Southern Utah. And uh, yeah, it's gonna be a great, it was a great session and I think you'll enjoy it. Um, he dives into a few things, doesn't he, Josh? Like one, one is around accidental discovery, which I love kind of the, the things that that conjures up in your mind, accidental discovery. Um, embracing the unknown, another thing that I think we've talked about a lot over the years. Uh, and also kind of how modern technology like um, machine learning can help reduce trial and error of new material discovery, like i.e. find incredible new materials that can change the world very quickly instead of waiting decades. What else did he talk about? Yeah, no, I think uh, it was, uh, there was a lot that went into that conversation, I think. But one of the things that, again, I'll just say about, about Taylor is, you know, materialism, you know, to have a podcast and a YouTube channel, you know, popular one on materialism, on on science, like, I mean, he, he it's so engaging how he presents his material that, like, you, you wouldn't know it until you listened to him, whether you listen to his TEDx talk or his podcast, like, the way he presents um, scientific information is is fun and engaging and relatable for just about anybody. Like, it's, it's, it's really cool, some of the stuff that he, that he talks about and gets into, but I would say also, like, even in his own life, he's, he seems to be doing just, just anything and everything. It's really crazy if you follow him on social media. As you mentioned, beekeeping, um, you know, there's some interesting stuff that he's doing right now involving digging deep into the earth to find human remains of somebody. I don't know, <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's, it's nuts. He's, he's into so many different things, but yeah, just a, a good guy, good friend, and yeah fun conversation yeah enjoy it and yeah. don't forget to subscribe and like it on social media cool thanks guys thank you this yeah. is this is an interesting one for us i think that you know um i would i would say we're just as interested in you as uh -huh. we are in uh materialism i would even say more so in you yeah. Um, but, you know, of course, when when you, you know, from your TEDx talk, the the concept of accidental discoveries, you know, I think branches out a whole entire grouping of questions that we'd love to get your perspective on. Um, 
Yeah, I'll, I don't know. I, I think, um, yeah, so we'll spend some time. We'll talk about you. We'll talk about your journey. Cool. Talk about materialism. We'll talk about your podcast and, and, and your TEDx talk. And Rad. Is that cool? Yeah, I'd love to do it. Nice. Yeah, there's that theme all the way through uh, around kind of creating something from nothing, which is, yeah. I guess material isn't really doing that, but maybe <laughs> it is. Uh, but but that you know how how it's challenging status quo how you are yeah uh, and how the work that's being done out there is also is definitely challenging the status quo and how it's changing the world which it seems like it's changed the world maybe dozens of times right hundreds of yeah. times the the innovation in this area well I love that idea that you put forward of like making something out of nothing I teach right so I'm interacting with students all the time and so often I'll see students who have this mindset that they're gonna get their degree and if they just like hold out long enough to get that piece of paper at the end, like somebody's gonna be waiting for them. Like this amazing job, mm. just like, oh, the engineer we've been waiting for, you're finally here, how great we can, you know, we can solve these problems. But well, that does happen, right? It's not like it's, it's not impossible, but it's not the normal. The people that are excited about hiring someone, they look at someone who's actually, you know, proactively created something from nothing, that started that organization, that created something, that built a database, that tried some new program, that isn't waiting for someone else to tell them, hey, come here and do this, but is actively mm. making something without being told how or what to do. They're just being curious and letting their curiosity guide them to make something interesting. And those students, man, they've got dozens of offers waiting for them, mm. the best companies. And it's hard to teach somebody to do that because I tell them, like, be proactive, and they don't know what that means yet. And I say, make something, and they don't know what that means yet. So I think it has to start with that curiosity, willing to follow, like, not just be lazy, don't just, like, jump through the hoops, but actually get passionate about it and follow your curiosity. Right. And I think this is a great place to to start off with because I think the one thing that strikes me ever since you know I've, 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 ever since I met you is is just the 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 passion, the curiosity, and the wonder that you put into how how you teach, how you educate, how you talk about the materialism, and, and it's right. so it's infectionate or infectious, I would say, and it's like. It makes me want to listen to your podcast. I mean, and 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 and, and I, I would just say I think that's one of the things that interests me the most about you. And I think you model that as an archetype, I guess, yeah. you know, for your students. And I don't know. So where did where did that come from? I guess you know, going back, like when did you find yourself interested in materialism, or even, you know, going into science? I would say, yeah. and then into materialism. Like, well, what, what was that? Welcome to the podcast, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, God, great question. Uh, you know, I grew up, uh, I, I credit my parents for a lot of who I am. Like we all do. Like we are physically, you know, biologically a product of them. And I've got my mom who's this, you know, she, she was studying math when she was in college. She's a math head. She's a geek. And my dad was a surfer bum who never graduated high school. Mm, okay. He was dealing drugs. He was, <laughs> yeah, he was a rough character. They were yeah. stealing cars. He got caught and went to jail over it. And uh, anyways, it was a turning point for him in his life. He decided, you know, you can keep going that path and it's not, not looking so good. Or you can flip it, you know, and kind of go another way. And he did, you know, he, he, I'm LDS, so he served a mission and that was pretty defining for him. He, um, he started a family, he got his GED, he joined the military. And uh, he took that same sort of happy-go-lucky, exciting personality, but he found a direction for it. Mm. And I think as kids, we benefited from both that. We got my dad's like, just, you couldn't help but love him, nature. And my mom's, you know, she's, she's a detail person and she's about, you know, doing things right. And if you don't do it right, you do it again. So I don't know, I think that I, I get a little bit from them. Why material science? I've always just kind of liked tech. My dad bought me a robotics kit when I was a little kid, a little electronics kit. Mm. And I built, I remember a, uh, a, an alarm that would trigger if somebody went in my room. And I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever made, right? It was just <laughs> a little a like kid, light yeah, sensor, sure. basic stuff. 
it was the coolest thing ever. And I, I knew that sort of tech was for me, but I didn't know which. I liked robotics. I liked chemistry. I liked everything. So when I learned about material science, it wasn't until my, you know, I'd, I'm LDS and I served a mission as well. So I'd already done a year before mission, the mission and come back. And it's that point you need to pick a major and stick with it. And I didn't even know what I was going to do yet. So then I met with material science and they told me, you know, materials is at the confluence of chemistry and physics and mechanical engineering because materials are a part of everything. Mm -hmm. Whether it's fundamental physics at the astrophysics level, you're still using materials for the sensors, for, for everything. Or whether it's, you know, robotics and you're relying on a better tread or belt or screw, you know, whatever. So I just love that. I love the flexibility that it gives you to work in endless, you know, fields. You're not pigeonholed into one field for the rest of your life. And it's been nice. Over the course of my career, I've been able to jump around from topic to topic. I worked in thermoelectrics, which are these devices that take heat to electricity and back and forth. And then we've jumped over to super hard materials like my TED Talk was about and just everywhere in between. So that's exciting to have the flexibility to move around. Like, it's pretty great. Yeah. Are you still in super hard materials? Is that absolutely what you're yeah. I mean, right now? So we've done, we've been successful there, and so it's yeah. really exciting. We keep on making uh, new materials that are harder. Uh, one thing that we're really excited about right now, we found materials that are both super hard, and that was you know, exciting enough. But some of the materials we discovered have unexpected ductility, right? So most materials, if you're not familiar with material science lingo, ductility is like when you, when you bend something, if it's a plate in your kitchen, it's just going to snap. But if it's a paper clip, you can bend it quite easily. And normally materials that are super hard are more like your kitchen plate. They mm -hmm. just break. It's really rare to find something that is super, super hard, but also accommodates ductility and, and mm. plastic deformation. And these materials do, they're right at the, uh, the, sort of the trade-off when you'd start calling it ductile while still being super hard. No, nobody's found that before. So we're excited about it. And now the scientist in me is trying to figure out well, what the hell's going on. Like what, what's the origin of this plasticity and what shouldn't be a plastic material? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I think going back to, let, 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 if we could maybe even just level set real quick. So just to help people understand um, who might not know what materialism is, or mater material science is and kind of what it is that you really are looking into and, or just kind of give us a broad overview just for the, yeah. the reg regular uh, viewer. So material story. science, the hook that got me is it's this study between the relationships between the structure of a material, its processing and its properties. Like these things are connected. If you want a certain property, strength or ductility or whatever, mm -hmm. then you need a structure that will allow that. And the way that you get to structures is by processing materials different ways. So obviously you can pick your different chemistries, but as you bake them or stir them or crush them or squeeze them and press them, whatever you're going to do to them, you're changing its structure. That might be at the atomistic level, like how the atoms arrange themselves, or it might be zoomed out a little bit. There's big chunks of atoms that come together, and then we call these grain boundaries, right? Regions where there's, you know, where they come together and there's imperfections at those boundaries. Maybe it's defects in the material, but I loved this idea of connecting structure to property to processing. Mm. And that, that as a field is really exciting. That's a fun place to be because it allows you to be an engineer because you can make things, right? Mm -hmm. It's about understanding processes, but you can be a scientist because you can understand why these connections exist and how and what's the mechanism. What a fun field to be in. Yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I want to kind of just, I guess, continue on in, uh, through your story. So, you know, from the point when you picked your major, you went to UCSB. Yeah. And so, then, yeah, yeah I, I, as an undergrad, uh, I actually started at Westminster College in Salt Lake oh, City because yeah. I mean, we were super duper poor growing up. My dad was, like I said, working through his GED and he was sick. And so he's one of these guys on the side of the freeway with a sign that said, you know, we work for food, hungry family sort of thing. Yeah. It's just crazy looking back on that now because my siblings have become successful. Like we're doing well in life and it's hard to remember that for a while we were living off of a dad installing car stereos, mm. right? Fixing old cars for a living. 
but uh, we were we were poor is the point. And so uh, I used to have this mindset that to go to a good school meant to go to an expensive school, and that was just not in the cards for me, I thought, because we couldn't afford it. And uh, Westminster offered me a scholarship, and uh, I remember getting so excited because I could have never afforded to go there. And I went for a year, and I, it was a, it's a fine school. It's a great school. But I think, like, reality – there was this mismatch between what I expected and what it was. I realized that these were just students. They were, they were just classes. It wasn't like dramatically better than what I had expected. And uh, in some ways, a lot of the students there are pretty well-to-do and I didn't connect with them. Mm. So, you know, server mission come back and I figured that that wasn't for me anymore. And so I just thought I'd go look at the U and man, was that a right choice? Like small uh, scholarships paid for my school, but it wasn't expensive in, in either case. I could have paid for it anyways. Really cool place. Uh, did my degree there and did well. Uh, I think it helps that I was in a small department. It's easier to, it's easier to do well when you've got a small cohort of, of peers. Uh, but I got to grad school at UCSB, right? I mm -hmm. was going to do my PhD there in materials. And I remember showing up on day one. There was 33 students in my class. And these dudes were brilliant. The guys and gals there were just so smart. I've never felt so out of my league in my entire life. I remember the first yeah. class you take is this really hard thermodynamics class. And I have never worked so hard for like a B minus in my life. Like, which in grad school is like, if you don't get below a B minus, like you're not passing. And it was, it was brutal, dude. So yeah, uh, that was my path there. I realized I was maybe not as smart as I once thought. <laughs> once you're around people that are actually smart. Holy cow, it's challenging. Yeah. But I did start to notice that uh, most engineers, and I'd seen this before, but you, you're probably aware of engineers, not typically, uh, they lack the social skills. The, they can't typically carry on a normal conversation. They typically are a bit weird. And I didn't have as much of that. For, for better or worse, I'm a little, a little more normal, my wife would say, than your average engineer. Um, and that's turned out to be a huge strength. Now, later on in my career, I did my PhD uh, at Harvard and found the same thing. My advisor switched schools, and it was more the same. Rich kids, very bright, not always the most uh, tactful, maybe you'd say. Uh, but it, and it gets even worse in academia. These, these academics, they all like are the smartest people in the room, but most of the time, they don't know how to carry on a conversation mm -hmm. outside of their field, and they can be a bit odd. And, mm -hmm. and they certainly don't know how to sell their research. They can be very by-the-book and factual, and they lose people with their jargon, and they forget that a lot of what we do is talking to people, which is selling ideas and convincing people and trying to get them on board with what you're trying to say as well. Yeah. And that's served me really well. Well, that's what, again, I, that goes back to, I think, what just strikes me so much about you is, you know, it's just thinking about your, even now as, as a professor, right? And I, I, I see everything that you're into, right? We met, you know, through you doing your TEDx talk and then ultimately, you know, you have your podcast, all of your lectures. And I don't know if they're all there, but I know a lot of your lectures are on YouTube, yeah, almost all of them. which is incredible. And so there's an element of, I mean, but just also the way that you, 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 you educate and you conversate, I think is, and, and the way that you break really difficult concepts down into really clear, understandable examples for a general audience is just, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody do it as well as, as you do. Like it really strikes me. So, you know, as you kind of then got into the, the educational space, right. And, 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 and you're kind of leveraging, I think what is a real, like a huge strength for you. I, I'm interested in just kind of getting your thoughts and your perspective as to why, you then started diving into this idea of putting all of your all of your all of your lectures and your content oh, yeah, on YouTube sure. and, and starting the podcast and putting yourself out there the way that you do. Yeah. So uh, I, it started back 2016, 17, I mm. think. Uh, so I'd been on the job for a couple of years. I was feeling comfortable as a teacher. I was, you know, the first couple of years are brutal. Like you do everything wrong. Um, but I'd gotten over those initial hiccups and was starting to be what I thought was maybe an OK educator. 
And I was teaching a ceramics class and a bunch of students had, he was on the ski team or something mm. and he was going to miss like a ton of classes. And I was like, come on, dude. And he's like, well, can you just like record your lectures? And I was like, fine, <laughs> I guess I'll record them. And yeah. then like, I didn't know where to put them. I know that there's like canvas and stuff, but I didn't know how to put them on there. So I was like, I'll just put them on YouTube and I'll make them unlisted. And then a couple other students were like, well, I'm going to miss something. I've got a wedding. Could you just make them <laughs> publicly available? And I was like, really like nervous and shy because like mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm the smartest person on any of these topics and I'm worried that that smartest person is out there and they'll see them and think like this goon like what is he doing <laughs> but uh whatever I was like I don't care I'm just gonna put him up there and I figured because ultimately no one's gonna watch him it'll be just my 20 30 students in my class tops and I was wrong there's this huge audience. There's this huge like desire for content like mm -hmm. that out there. It blew me away. When I started seeing the numbers rolling in on these videos, I was like gobstopped, like just absolutely flabbergasted. And so I started putting everything on there. And then I started making like tutorials for software or you know problems or you name it. If it was something that I'd struggled with once upon a time, I put a YouTube tutorial out there. And the views just have been climbing. It's been so fun. I mean, I'm a data guy. I do materials informatics, right? So I love data. And watching these numbers over time just like explode mm -hmm. blows me away. And it's just like you see people posting from all around the world saying like, dude, this video helped me so much. I've been struggling trying to figure this out. And here it is. Thanks so much, man. Like I, I still get unbelievably thrilled at comments like that. Yeah. Um, growing up, you know, I'm LDS. So we have this thing where we, we learn about you know, a little bit of our future, a little bit, we get this so-called patriarchal blessing. And in that, it talks about maybe what's to come in your life. And one of the things that when I was 14, I got this, it talked about, you know, your teachings reaching the far end of the world. And I was thinking like, what is that going to be, right? Is that like going to <laughs> conferences? What is that? And uh, I see it now. I see it. I see India and Pakistan and Turkey, like all these places gobbling up this material science stuff I'm putting on, on the internet, whether it's through the podcast or through these classes or tutorials anyways it's been such an exciting thing for me to to realize the potential that the internet has offered for free you know high quality education yeah i think that's rad did the did so when you were at to that point where you were starting to make a lot of your lectures public um were you at all concerned about like let's say I know in the in a corporate environment, right? Like there's a there's a mm. lot of pressure as far as what you can put out online yeah. as yourself, you know. But you have the affiliate affiliation to that that organization. So were you worried at all about what what the university said, or did they have uh, they said anything? A little to you? bit. I was more worried about copyright infringement, oh, yeah, right? Okay. Because right. when you teach, you're pulling from papers and ideas and figures, and to be totally copyright uh, protected, you can't present that stuff. Yeah. Or you certainly can't monetize it on YouTube. You get busted. And so I've had to be really careful now. Like in the early days, for example, I would watch a video on YouTube like Man at Arms. That's a blacksmithing channel. Mm. And blacksmithing is nothing but material science. Just material scientists understand what's going on. Blacksmiths just have experience. And yeah. so mm. experience guides them. But it's so fun to watch those videos and say, now, why did he do that? Mm. What's going on there at the end? And so that worked at first. But as soon as I start putting that stuff on YouTube, uh, you know, I get like copyright strikes and I, all of a sudden I'd realize, oh, I have to be a little bit more cautious about that. It's still possible. You just need to be thoughtful about what content. I, I actually, I'm the guy reading those, when people talk about, you know, Creative Commons licenses, I'm the guy that's reading those saying, sweet, <laughs> yeah. I can use this. Um, yeah. But from like the university standpoint, no, like think like they would love it if you, Josh, if you were a professor, if you wrote the seminal textbook that everyone started using, that would be a huge, great thing because then everyone around the country that studies your field would say, using the book by Josh at all, you know, mm -hmm. that would be a great thing. And 
that's sort of what this has become. This is like the modern day version of a textbook. Like textbooks are going away. They're yeah. already going away. Yeah. Already they're moving towards online modules and things like that. To me, this is just like a modern textbook. And I've seen it, right? When I go to conferences, I do materials informatics. And that's a, you know, it's not a small field, but it's relative to material science. It's quite small. It's, I don't know. It's a small fraction of the total material science community. And yet when I go to conferences or give talks at, at you know, universities for symposium and colloquium, people have heard of me and not necessarily from my research, like some of them through my research, yeah. but the majority have heard of me through the podcast or through, That's you know, cool. I'll go to lunches with these students over, you know, when I visit these schools and then the students will be like, I, uh, I've seen you before. I've, <laughs> I've watched your YouTube video on refelt refinement or, you know, Vesta. Do and it's just it? like, they notice the mustache. Oh first? yeah. yeah it's yeah, yeah. so great. And I just like, yeah, that, I get so psyched about yeah. that because it's just, it, it's disruptive innovation, right? It's a new way to get content out there in the same way that, you know, the very first, you know, textbooks, you know, change things. This is just the next iteration of that, I feel like. Yeah. Sounds like it's a little bit of a, you, you kind of came across that by accident. Like, totally. Like totally. <laughs> some of your other topics. I remember when I, when I watched your TED, I was there, the TED talk uh, in person when Josh uh, gave his TEDx and, and uh -huh. yourself. And I always, I, I remember that talk for a long, long time <laughs> afterwards. I remember actually telling a couple of my daughters about that story about the sweetener uh -huh. uh, <laughs> and explaining that. And okay, one of my daughters was only seven at the time, but she's trying to, trying to help her understand that some things happen by accident, right? Yeah. And some things don't. Um, it sounds like that, even just with your YouTube kind of teaching, Absolutely. that's where it came from. And I know we're going to explore that a little bit more, like that unintentional innovation, yeah, uh, as well as the kind of more intentional, uh, you know, uh, innovation. But um, I, I, yeah, I find it really interesting. I don't know if we to go here, but I love the fact that, I mean, something your parents taught you though, uh -huh. something Im impacted the way that you think now. Like, is it, how did they bring you up in a way that kind of led you to some of the key decisions you made? So it, it's curiosity, like uh, my mom's it. a teacher, right? She ended up doing yeah. education for her degree and she taught for a year and then they decided, you know, they prayed and thought about it and felt like, you know, mom should stay home and raise these kids. Even though my dad was sick and like, not, not quite begging for food, but doing like every odd job, they felt that that was the right thing. And from the outside looking in, you might say like, that's crazy. Like, why would you do that? Like she could have provided, like why stick to these old stereotypes? But that wasn't it. Like they felt like she had the skill to teach and like the most important people that she could teach is not 30, you know, kindergartners, but her own kids and to be there. And I'm, I'm always in her debt for this. I'm unbelievably grateful for it. My, me and all my siblings, we have all have this love for learning. If, if you met them, you'd realize that where they got it from, because it's all from parents who taught us to have curiosity, to love learning, to to not be afraid of trying things, to, to give it a shot. That's awesome. Was there anything, sorry, go on. No, 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 go. Was there anything that you had to unlearn? <laughs> yeah, my dad has like no filter and I have a little bit of that. <laughs> I, I'm constantly putting my foot in my, I'll ask my wife, she will, have, I'm sure she keeps her records. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to very often, I'm a passionate person, so when I get mad, I get really mad and I've been, I've learned to consult with my wife. She proofreads my emails. When a student sends me an entitled email <laughs> that I deserved an A and I just want to tell them, you deserved an F, uh, I have her proofread it and usually delete it and then she helps me rewrite it. So yeah, I, there's, there's, we all get things from our parents, good and bad, and yeah. I'm no different. Uh, I think passion and uh, my wife says that I don't think things through and that's true. I'm, a, I'm an action person. I take action. And impulsive, I, kind of. Very impulsive, yeah. yeah. When I see something, I don't always consider all the ramifications because I would rather 
not lose momentum. I'd mm -hmm. rather harness momentum, right. even if it means you have to go back and fix something. The same way like the, like the YouTube videos. I'm going to say something wrong on the podcast. I'm going to say something incorrect. But I would rather err on the side of doing something, moving forward, even if you mess up a little bit and have to issue a mea culpa. Like, it's not the end of the world. I, I, am, yeah. I think it's so much more important to make movement. Just and it's great. Like, my moving. wife is the opposite. Like, she's prone to, like, paralysis by analysis, that, as, it says, as you say it. And uh, I think that having both of us together is a, is, is a lifesaver because she prevents me from the really big mess ups mm. and keeps me from getting in over my head on some things. Um, but I certainly move us forward in a lot of ways been a common thought the last few weeks actually in my mind about just things that will just keep things moving i think you talked about it a few years ago actually the importance of that just momentum, snowmobile. Yeah. Yeah, momentum. inertia so, like is so dangerous so, momentum is so yeah. powerful i'm curious to know like what when you said initially you had self-doubts right around should i be here what do i what am i doing here whether it's at college or when you first started teaching yeah. you said you made mistakes yeah. and difficulties what what can you tell us a little bit more about yeah, sure. that? I mean, every grad student can understand this because at least in the STEM fields and probably in all of them, everyone feels that way because you go from, if you went to grad school, you probably did pretty well as an undergrad and you were just like me. All of a sudden you're around people where they're probably a whole lot smarter than you and that is just overwhelming. And all of a sudden you start feeling like I shouldn't be here. I'm an imposter, right? Everyone deals with this, I think, in grad school. And I was no different. One of the times I really felt it, oh gosh, I was working in the lab and uh, we had this old equipment, because that's what most engineering equipment is. It's old, and so you fix it and fix it and use it. And this equipment was no, no different. And we had just, like, redone some hoses because it's water-cooled, and so these clamps, like, you have to clamp them on the hoses. And uh, I, I did it and was running it, and it was fine. And then I went home, <laughs> which I probably shouldn't have done because who knows what was going to happen, and it was the first time running it post-fixing it. Sure enough, I get a phone call from somebody uh -huh. saying, dude, there's water coming out from the under, under the door of your lab. And I'm just like, oh. So I ran back and we had like flooded this whole lab. And, you know, this was like a recurring theme for me in grad school. I, had a, I was in China for a portion of it as this part of the exchange program. And I had a fire there, but I wasn't there. And somebody had to put it out and I showed up and they were just like, your lab is on fire. <laughs> in grad school, we had, a, you know, an acid explosion because I messed up on that one. I actually added some alcohol to an acid, which is a big no-no. And then I put the bottle on tight, which is also a big no-no. Usually you let it vent in the case that it were to generate gas, it could not explode. And this did explode on, oh gosh. Like, so yeah, like I definitely have at many times felt like, why am I even here? Like I am, I'm not the smartest guy. I have broken like, it labs on three continents basically. <laughs> like, <laughs> why am I doing this? And um, I think if you, if you let yourself, you can focus on that and then lose all your momentum and, and do nothing. But if you just realize that like, probably everyone's messed up. And even if you've messed up the most, it doesn't mean you can't do good things. You can't like learn from it and get better and, you know, progress. So it's just a mindset, I think. Yeah. And now I just laugh that I tell my students, the last place you want me is in the lab with you. Like, let, bring me your results and let me analyze them with you. I don't need to be doing the experiments anymore. Yeah. That's cool. The, um, I, I don't know what, what, what's normal in, in, in the field that you're in, but what strikes me a lot, and I think thinking about your curiosity and thinking about what drives you and thinking about even the fact that I, I start to think about, you know, an explosion in a lab or, or a leak in a lab, like there's probably precautions that you can take, but if there's a field where mistakes are in somewhat, you know, what you talked about even in your TEDx talk, oh, talk these, these accidental discoveries, <laughs> yeah. these mistakes, it seems almost... Like you're going to have them in a, in a way. So it's almost, is it even more forgiving in, in that kind of a field? I mean, there are the situations where you can just take yeah, better I care. Yeah, I mean, anytime where there's like safety, like yeah. people get really 
Yeah, hung up. But there are non-safety related accidents, which is exactly like what I was talking about that TED talk, you know, in the discovery of vulcanized rubber. Mm. He's on his kitchen. So this guy was an amazing, Charles Goodyear, right? Of like Goodyear tires. This mm -hmm. is him. Before he came around, rubber sucked. It would like melt when it got hot. It wasn't like fully connected, right? It was more like a really thick, like honey, like cold honey. It's kind of like what rubber was like. And so they couldn't use it for what they wanted to. And he was like dead set on fixing this problem. And everything he tried was not working. He like lost his fortune several times over. He he was in debtor's prison at one point. Mm. He sold his kids' textbooks, his school textbooks, his kids' school textbooks. Like it's a crazy story. Mm. But when he discovers it, he's cooking on a stove, rubber. He didn't sell his wife's pots and pans because he used them for experiments, which is cringy <laughs> in and of itself. And he uh, spills some sulfur into the pan. Total goof, like he knocked it off and it spilled into it. And all of a sudden it cures. It sets up like the hard rubber that your shoes and everything around, you know, half the things around us are made of. Total fluke. Um, those things, when it's not safety involved, but mm -hmm. just like an accident, are surprisingly like the, I would say, that still the most common way that some of the most exciting discoveries come to pass. Somebody mix like I I did this. I mixed up chemistry was wrong. Like I, I thought I weighed it out correctly, and then up, looking back on it, oh, we messed that up, and it would, led to a better material with better properties. This stuff happens all the time in academia. Mm. I think that's so fascinating. And I want to dive more into that, and I, and I also yeah. kind of want to dive then I think into the material informatics part of, yeah. of this discussion, I think, but what, uh, I, so there's two points that I want to make real quick. I don't know. Have you ever seen a channel called, I, I think it's Vsauce or anything on I, YouTube. Vsauce? Vsauce. It's no, basically, it's an educational kind of channel, but it's, it's, it feels hip and it feels okay. fast. It feels like it's, it, it kind of pulls you through with really interesting information. And, um, when I hear you talk, and tell these stories about previous, uh -huh. you know, scientists and and early discoveries and things like that. Like, I just see in my head, we, we've we've made uh, you know these really incredible explainer videos before, and I just see your stories playing out in these incredible <laughs> explainer videos. Well, thanks, man. Because the way that you talk through them is so it's just so engaging, and you 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 pull through with all these various questions, and you just, you just get so animated. But um, I, the other thing I wanted to say was is that. It's so interesting and very refreshing, I would say, coming from from the business world or or even just sometimes I think we all get really caught up in this idea of uh, and even in the creative world, like mm -hmm. the idea and act of, let's say, creation or invention, you know, but it seems like at least everything that I hear from you uh, is all based around discovery. You know, yeah. it's it's all. I mean, of course, there are the being. I mean, there's there's a difference between this act of creation that feels like it's really heavy, heavy-handed onto yourself, and then this act of discovery that says, "Well, these conditions were right, and and I tested a hypothesis, and look what we found. This is incredible," you know. And and it, it, it's it's a very refreshing outlook that I, mm. I I'd be interested to see more of outside of, let's say, you know, or inside the entrepreneurial environment, inside the mm the business environment, even the creative environment. And I think that comes down to the idea of, um, you know, frequent testing and, yeah. you know, and, and kind of being okay with the idea that we don't know what we're going to discover rather than, yeah. you know, we, we go into it with a specific intention to, right. so, you know what I'm saying? Play, so you're saying maybe even without an outcome, I mean, well, you have to have a hypothesis, but I think being, I, I would say being to break more open rules, to, just, yeah. 
So I teach a course on technology commercialization, and we, mm. we use zero to one and lean startup. And I don't know if you're familiar with these, but yeah, absolutely, they talk about that sort of stuff, like the importance of well, the the advantages that small companies have over big companies because they're they're flexible. They can try things. They're so light on their feet. They can be versatile. And big companies have a way to do things, and it's you know inertia. It's inertia, mm. and it's just like nobody wants to do something different because it looks weird. It feels yeah. weird to be doing something that is unexpected, and uh, it's a huge advantage to be able to try things out and and prove to yourself that you like to, to treat uh, a product development like a like like a science experiment is the best way to do it like you assume your hypothesis mm -hmm. is that people want to buy your gadget but like why not prove it like prove it like build it get it in the hands of a consumer somebody who doesn't like you great like do not give it to a friend give it to someone who doesn't know you doesn't like you and ask for that legitimate feedback like that was such a novel concept for me when i learned about it mm -hmm. and i love it that build measure learn loop where you prove to yourself that like, think about it like this, like your time that you're spending on this company is like the most valuable thing that you have. Like you could be spending your time on anything. You're here on this podcast. You think it's valuable, right? But have you proven that it's valuable to yourself? Like, and how did you prove it? Like, what's the mm -hmm. metric that convinced you that this is the right thing for you to be doing yeah. with your time? Yeah. Did you ask a friend and they all said, oh yeah, I love your <laughs> podcast. It's great. Like, of course they're going to tell you that. They're your friends. But like that concept of, of treating every aspect of your life like a science experiment and you can actually test it and see if it's worthwhile Wow, what a, what a novel concept. I love that. Yeah. Well, it's even, you know, because there's there's so many frameworks and methodologies. Like if I was to relate it back to, let's say, a design thinking framework or design, you know, certain design principles even. And, and going back to, you know, I, 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 I loved science when I was in high school. And, and the idea of the scientific method always always stuck with me. And, I, of course, I, I see the parallels, you know, uh -huh. from the scientific method to all these other, you know, um, all these other methodologies and principles. And it feels like... We're kind of it, it's they're kind of trying to fall into the right direction of, of I guess let's say being open to to exploring and discovering and then and, and find you know finding what we find uh, except for that last little bit it feels like we just need to know what the destination is you know but I I, I don't know I, I it's interesting that you teach that course um, and I, I'd be in, very interested to know if you if you actually do you ever go into any businesses and 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 Kind of, oh yeah, we, we bring speakers regard. in yeah. for one thing because sometimes you know their stories the students love way more than me. Yep, they're yammering or reading a mm. textbook. Having somebody come up and say like, "I started a business and it failed because of this, or it was successful because of this," that is so much more impactful. Mm. Um, but uh, we also do consult. I've got a consulting firm. It's Utah Materials Research. It's an LLC. Mm. We've done that for seven or eight years, and it's been so fun. So DPS skis, for example, their Phantom Wax that was. Uh, one of popular science's top 10 inventions of 2018, I think. Uh, that was our consulting firm came no up with that for which is rad. So, yeah, it's fun to take big companies that don't know, maybe they don't have the skill set in a specific area like material science, and sometimes they just don't, they, they haven't gone through this idea of like build, measure, learn, and rapidly prototyping. Mm. And it's fun to go to some of these companies and provide that form. We've done it in, I don't know, some of these are under an NDA, and I'm trying to remember which ones are which, so maybe yeah. I'll not mention. But <laughs> That's okay. it's been fun to go to companies and bring that rapid acceleration. And, you know, sometimes they'll come to them and say, like, well, we need somebody that's an expert in this, and is that you? I'm like, no, but there isn't one. And give me, uh, you know, Figure 20 out. hours of <laughs> lit review, and I'll be up to speed on it. And, and next thing you know, you've got a whole new cool project to work on, and it's rad. That piece that you just mentioned, what t can you tell me a bit more about that? Did you say ski? Yeah. Is there a ski? Yeah. So that one I can talk about. That was DPS skis. It's a yeah. it's a Utah brand skis. They're they're uh -huh. really nice. I mean, 
not just because they sponsored our company, <laughs> but they're, they're really good skis. But uh, when people wax their skis right now, they take a floor polymer of different varieties. You you know, there's this whole process. I've changed candle wax. It didn't work very yeah. well. Carry, <laughs> yeah, you don't use that. I've done this material thing and yeah. it didn't work. But carry it going. Tell me more. So it's this like art and it's a bit of like witchcraft voodoo. Like you go to different people and they'll like scrape different <laughs> yeah. patterns into your skis and they'll like blah, 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 blah. But the key thing is everyone thinks it's working. But by our best estimates, any wax that you put on there is gone within like mm -hmm. a short period of time. Whether that's a single day, a run, I think depends on the snow conditions, but it's not sticking around, which is why, mm -hmm. you know, professional skiers, ones that are going for time, you know, breaking time records, they are getting them waxed after, ever, before every event, basically. So that's not feasible for most of us. And most of us just want a better ski, you know, experience. And uh, so we, we, I say we, it was really my colleague did all this work. I didn't, I did very little. I mostly do the hard materials and he does the soft ones and this is the soft material. Sure. But Jeff Bates, uh, uh, the guy who founded the company with me, he had this premise, this hypothesis that, you know, what if we altered the ski base itself? What if we altered the entire base as opposed to putting something on the surface, which mm. will scrape off after a little while, but if you just change it so the whole thing is lower friction or it is somehow better in that regard. Mm. And that's what they came up with. That's the idea behind Phantom. It's a one-time treatment that has, we've demonstrated, um, a, a permanent effect. Now, you can still top it off season to season, but it is way better than the waxes out there. And mm. it is, anyways, I, I don't know how much I can say without disclosing anything, but pretty pretty rad technology. So it is a wax that goes on the it's ski? It's not a wax. Or is it the actual it is a material? Treatment. You're modifying the base of your ski in a way that makes it behave as if it was waxed. Cool. But it's permanent. It's a permanent. You're changing the material there. It and is awesome. Could, that cause problems with like... It, I mean, like Olympics, and is this just something that anyone can use? That, that I don't know, because I remember like in 2008. It's happening when, right um, now. <laughs> remember when they were breaking all the records with like the shark, uh, shark skin suits? You remember these? Yeah. The yes. swimsuits they had yes. were like modeled after shark skin uh -huh. or something. And they were breaking these records, and then I think they said they couldn't wear them. I don't know where it stands right now. You should look it up. But yeah, so will something like that happen? Uh, maybe. I, but we used to ski on like wooden skis, and now we're using advanced composites right. anyways. This is just like the next step in my view. Yeah, same as like tennis rackets yeah, and all these things that yeah. they, they, they advance. There was a big issue about that with, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Nike or Adidas, but there was a specific shoe that was... I, I bouncing. It was yeah, yeah, way too good, I guess. Well, and I think it was in some shaving. ways, if it like modifies like the mechanics of your body, like uh -huh. the way that it springs or something, I could see that. Like an argument, like, hey, this isn't like human behavior mm. anymore. But I don't know. As long as it's like openly available to everyone, if everyone can buy it, more power to you. Put it in the Olympics. Yeah. How, how long did that type of pro like initiative take then, from start that to finish? That was a couple years. Uh, yeah. We started. I would say that they had a an MVP, right? The minimum viable mm -hmm. product, yeah. like the thing that actually you could actually try it out in weeks, right? It didn't take them long to try a few things, but it was certainly iterations before it got to the product that they sell. And I think they're still iterating on it. They're still making it better. They actually hired one of the uh, PhDs from our department who had been moonshine, you know, moonlighting on that project. <laughs> and uh, he's now like, full-time working on it, I believe. Um, so I don't know. It's been three or four years that we've been interacting with that company. But uh, I, I think in a year's time, we had something that was actually pretty valuable. In six months, they actually had something that kept their interest, right? Because they're paying us by the yeah. by the month, basically. And we had to show that we're moving it in a direction that they were excited about. Was there any um, accidental kind I, of uh, I, I wish I could say on that one because I wasn't as heavily involved on that yeah, one. Yeah, it was yeah. my corporation, but it was my, my colleagues, my partner's yeah. project. Uh, he could say better than I could if they're even allowed to. I don't know what he's allowed to say on that project. I've got one, one, one question around that specific area then for like spontaneously, I can't even say it, you know, <laughs> 
being able to just kind of really explore. So, you, Josh, you mentioned corporate world or kind of the ability. You know, if you if you if you run um, kind of teams by say a PI where you have kind of four or five sprints and then you have this IP sprint, what ends up happening is people just get their work done. Yep. And they're doing, they're doing the test and learn. They're, do, they're doing that stuff. But when it comes to the innovation sprint, yep. the time to innovate and I guess experiment, play, have some hypotheses that mm. aren't strictly tied to, say, the project, it goes out of the window usually because they've got too much to do from the previous yeah. you know, the work that they need to continue to do. So the play and the experimentation, the curiosity so, so really critical. goes out of the window. Yeah, and it's so critical. What, what have you found useful to, to, to actually... Because I know you, it was funny when you're talking about the sweetener thing and people kind of, uh-huh. what was it, 1880 or whatever it was, 78, where they, he's licking his finger and he discovers sweetener. And, and I know you said that in your labs you don't, uh-huh. you, know, you don't let uh-huh. people lick their uh-huh. fingers <laughs> and break the rules. But like, how, how do you instigate that play experiment and risk yeah. taking? So one thing we do is, you know, we have weekly meetings and like we're, I'm, it's like a small company. My research group, there's 10 PhDs and five masters and and undergrads. So it's like a, it's like a good number of people. And, um, one thing that I'm, I think is valuable is even though my research group does different areas, we've got people doing materials informatics, right? So machine learning applied towards materials research. We've got people looking at polymers. We've got people looking at things called high entropy. Like these are very different areas. I still have everyone come together because I love when somebody outside of the field will say like, Hey, you know, tell me about this. And it's like, a, it's a stupid question to people in the field. But it's so great because it forces you, first off, to communicate more broadly, which mm. is really valuable. But also sometimes they'll suggest something that's like, huh, that's kind of a good idea. Uh, another thing we instituted in our research group meetings is that we always have an intermission where you have to talk about something completely unrelated to your topic nice. for like two minutes. Like, teach me about the North American, you know, honeybee or whatever, <laughs> right? And uh, I don't know. I think that just that playfulness, like that people expect you to, to stuff, be doing yeah. something other than yeah. just your research is pretty great. So I, I wouldn't claim to have like the code cracked here. I'm still yeah. trying to figure it out myself, but those have been improvements, right? I, I like having done those and I want to do more things like that. The honeybee thing is interesting. You're a beekeeper, I right? I do. I was just actually had my bee suit on just before I came out here. I'm really? Pumped. I was checking on them. It's this time of the year where there's, there's the lower box where their brood is and the upper box where the honey is that you can actually harvest. And it's like 40 to 40, maybe 50% full right now, which yeah. I'm psyched about. Nice. Is that just a hobby? Yeah, I, it, my wife will tell you, I just, as, well? as soon as, I know, you'll eat all of it, I'm sure. But as soon as I have any five minutes of free time, I'll pick up a new hobby. And this was just a new one that I started <laughs> last year. What is that? Why, why, so, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, well, I guess, well, I know you mentioned, you know, there, there's a bit of, you know, maybe it's impulsive, you know, impulsive, but it's just, it's just there's I, this I love exploration learning. kind of Because thing. It, yeah. the funnest time is when you're first starting something. That's yeah. when you are getting like the most knowledge, like, I was learning about bees and they're, they're amazing. Like they're so amazing. Like I don't, I don't even start on a tangent about bees. Like the, the concentration of like new cool stuff to learn about there was just blown my mind. And I think that when I've learned about something I'm not learning anymore and it's sort of like just comfortable is when I move on to sort of a new hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, and some things I always come back to, you know, music is a good one. That's a creative outlet that even though, you know, you feel like you've mastered some aspect of it, you come back a month, two later and it's totally different. You can try something else. But yeah, I just enjoy learning. And so I think that's where hobbies come from for me. It's fun to do something different, to experience stimulation in a different way. Yeah. Can I just ask then, because I, I would say that even, I think 
I know I'm this way. Maybe, maybe you are a little bit, but I, I'm definitely fascinated by new ideas and, and you know, that early ex, you know, that early learning phase, that early exploration phase. And I have a really hard time sticking with something uh -huh. for a long period of time. Um, is, I guess from your perspective, and I'm thinking about the bees, like, uh -huh. you know, what happens to, like, do you continue with, with the beekeeping then as you jump to these other things? Or I guess, yeah. how do you, how do you kind of, I guess, I, make the decision. Yeah, of what I, to I need do like that Hermione like little time winder thing in my yeah. life because I've just got like <laughs> more stuff I want to do than hours <laughs> in the day. And uh, at some point, you have to you have to scale back. And so you you know life's about times and seasons. Yeah. And I've I've there've been things that I've been really into, and then you just don't have time for it yeah. for a period of time. And so you you draw back, and that's okay. Like I I love to write music, and I will write music like I'll binge. Like I'm kind of on one right now where I've been writing a ton. And then when work gets busy, maybe it's like grant writing season or, you know, mm. whatever. My kids are going through stuff. Or my wife needs help. You just kind of put it on the back burner. But times and seasons is a good thing for me. Like I remember mm. saw a, a guy was explaining, like you've seen the people that have the stick and like they're spinning plates on top of the stick. Yeah. I know I can see this. I'm like doing the motions. Mm. But um, you can have like three or four, you know, of these things going at the same time. But you don't have three or four hands. You can't be like spinning all of them at the same time. So you spin the one that you need to for a while, and then when something else is wobbling and it's about to fall. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, there we go. Hey, maybe a question for you. Um, I was just gonna say, like, uh, you know, you don't let it fall. So whether that's like work and life and you know church service, that's the example I heard of. I like that. Like, when you need to spend time on your family, you know, spin that plate. Mm -hmm. And if you need to, if that means that your work plate's getting wobbly a little bit, like, so be it. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's just times and seasons. That's really interesting. Because, I mean, even in the, the form that we had you fill out, that's the one thing that stood out to me. Because, I mean, even just, you know, knowing you for the last couple of years now, you know, you're into a lot of stuff. Like, I, I, I knew about the beekeeping. I knew about, you know, how often you're outdoors and, yeah. you know, out, out with your family. And it is very impressive. I And I... Like in, in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, how is he doing that? But it really feels like there is like a, a really strong element of balance in, in, in your seasons. Like, and, yeah. and you know when a season is, is for something specific. And yeah, it's, it's really amazing. And yeah. huge, huge kudos to my wife, who yeah. is uh, the most self-sacrificing person I've ever met. Like mm -hmm. she would want to do more things. And part of it is like her analysis paralysis where she won't like take the plunge, but also she enables me and my kids and my family to have this amazing life. And so we owe her so much because she does a lot of the unglamorous behind the scenes stuff that allows us to have hobbies, to have interests, to have time. And yeah, we're enormously indebted to her for that. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so thinking about, I, I do want to just ask, I guess, because we're talking about family, I want to. I, I do want to get to the material informatics part, <laughs> and, but uh, just as as far as uh, like your kids, do you see you know with your kids that same curiosity, and is that yeah, is that what fuels you to get outside and just explore the world, kind of thing? For least, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's different in all of them, right? I've got four kids, and they're as different as snowflakes are, right? Everyone's unique, yeah. and uh, so some have it more than others. Like I've got some kids who like love to learn and love to grind like when something's hard mm. they just like want to like stick with it which is like such an admiral in my mind that's like oh what a gift that skill where did you get that from mm. but what a gift yeah. and others who are like it's hard and they're like nope <laughs> <laughs> and you know they, they have their different strengths but uh what you said like 
having them get out there and see things like, yeah, that is a definite motivator. Mm. You know, I have all these, you know, hikes and adventures I like to go on and, and I like to go just in and of myself. It's always fun mm. to see that waterfall when you turn around the corner, to climb that thing, to get that exhilaration of mountain biking. But to have your kids experience that and for you to be the one that's enabling it for them, to have them experience it for the first time or to see them achieve something that was hard before. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a, it's so deeply rewarding. It's as good or better than when you experienced it the first time. Very, very cool. So yeah, absolutely. That's a driver for me. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Is, is there any, actually a side point, it makes me think of a quote by Polly P. Pratt. Who's my great ancestor. Is he? Five times great grandpa. Yeah. My mom's side. Really? I shared that quote with you some at some point, but I mean, it's about the Holy Ghost. Do you remember uh-huh. that quote? I don't know if I know this one. I, I'm not going to be able to quote it. It's too long, but it, it talks about just the vibrancy of life and curiosity and that it can be good for your soul, your mind, your body, your bones. I mean, even, yeah, it's, it's an epic quote by that my mum sent me a few years ago that meant a lot at the time that really changed the way that I, I, I was thinking and, and, and acting and, and it really helped me, but yeah, I'll send it over yeah, to you. I would love um, to read that. But, but how did, yeah. sorry, how did it change? What does that mean? How did well, it change the way that you're thinking? Well, you can, you can, in life, you can kind of survive sometimes, right? And just kind of go through the motions and you're really not thriving at all. You're existing. <laughs> um, but when you get your, your mindset and your spiritual mindset in the right place and in in you're in tune, then you, you're, ac- you're being able to access like everything, you know, the full suite of what life is meant to be about. And it opens your mind to like, you know, a desire to be more curious, to explore, to take risks, to do all of these things. And so it just kind of, it, it validated something I was already feeling, but it also then continues to make, it's actually a huge, huge poster in our kitchen uh, as of a few weeks ago. Um, so what would that be for yeah. everyone, right? Because I know what that means to me to have like balance and have your mind tuned, like you said it. Mm. But what does that mean to everybody else? Like how, and it's probably different for everybody. Like Josh, what would that mean to you? What would be a scenario where you could achieve and be creative and discover? And what would be the the criteria for that? Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) I'm currently going through a bit of a crisis right now, trying to figure out how to balance my life. Like it's really personal to me right now. And a, so a big sacrifice. I mean, I don't even know if I want to talk about this on the podcast. Oh, <laughs> Cut gosh. it later. Let's talk about no, it. No, no, no. Because this is, I think this is interesting. But I think, I don't remember necessarily the question. I just know what comes to my mind is, is that there is a big theme in my life right now seems to be the idea of sacrifice yeah. and trying to understand what it is that I'm supposed to sacrifice and what am I sacrificing to, let's say. What am mm. I... You know, this idea of I can only go so far, I can only control so much. So it's not just sacrificing the things that I'm, you know, that I'm into. It's, it's sacrificing myself to something else. And I'll say that it's a, been a very strange journey right now. And I'm not necessarily very religious, but there's an idea of faith that seems to be along this journey. And I don't know what to make of it. So I don't know. I don't know if that necessarily addresses the question that you were. I don't think it matters. Yeah. I think it's a good point. And, and yeah. I, think, I love the, but, but sacrifice does come back to that quote though, is that are you finding the right things to sacrifice? And I'm thinking, I think of very different things probably that you're thinking about. I'm not sure. But uh, probably, the, the, yeah, I, the, the, so like, I think back to some experiences I've had where 
the, the more I chose to sacrifice some good things, let's say, for some things that potentially were much even better, um, the, the payoff from, from the feeling that I was talking about, the thriving feeling was like multiplied mm. because of the sacrifice. So the more sacrifice I made in certain, certain things, the, the bigger payoff in, in other areas. But, yeah. So what, let me just double check. What was that? So what, specifically when you asked that question to me, when, from what you said, like what, can you just reframe the question yeah, like, again? Well, the quote is like, you know, when you have your mind in tune, yeah, I, I'm going to say the quote, the gist of it again. <laughs> yeah. Terrible memory. We should pull this up. I should, I've got it somewhere. Uh, it might even be in this book, but... Um, Do you have, by the so way, so I, can, I know we're trying to get yeah. uh, 12 o'clock out. I'm fine. Are you all right? My okay. flight's at five, so I've got plenty of time. Okay, all right. But um, ultimately, it, it just describes the, the, the spiritual side of us. And when we're in tune with that, when we're really in tune... It, it okay. explains what it does for your mind, your soul, your bones, even <laughs> like everything in your life. And it makes it everything it could possibly be. And your circumstances may not have even changed. Uh, it, it, it was all about the mindset. You know, it's kind of relates to Viktor Frankl's kind yeah. of thoughts around, you mm. know, you so choosing your own attitude. But yeah, to, to me, when he says that, I know what that means to me. It means that I have the Holy Ghost in my life mm -hmm. and I'm a religious person. So I know what that means. It means I've got a set of priorities, right? That my intentions are motivated towards not my own benefit, but what God wants out, out of my actions, right? Mm. But to, that's not everybody and everyone's mm -hmm. religious. And so I'm just curious, like, what would that mean to somebody who, maybe Josh, like, what would that mean to you to have, to have what he's describing? Right. Where so, you could unlock this creativity, this potential that is within you. Yeah, yeah. I, and I can see now where I made the connection to sacrifice. So, because I'm reading a lot about I mean, Spencer recommended the Viktor Frankl book to me, but I'm reading a lot about, you know, the connection from narrative to human experience. And ultimately, I would say at the root of all this is meaning, you know, and so I've been going through this as I, as, so I'm reading a lot of Carl Jung. I'm reading just a lot of psychology books right now. And I'm really, I'm exploring and I'm learning and I'm curious. I guess that's what I'm curious about right now. But at the at, at the root of it, you know, there is this really interesting. I'm going to go off on one a little bit. This really interesting identity crisis that kind of happened to me because of the podcast. Like we did really? an interview with his brother, um, who wrote Essentialism, Greg McEwen. I, I don't know it. Yeah, it's um, prioritizing your life so nobody else does. Right? It's okay. just okay. ultimately like the most essential thing, I would say. And at the, the same day we did that podcast interview, we got a book from M. Capito because she was on the podcast uh -huh. last season. Yep, yep. And it was a book called The she Cross. Kinda, she kind of has the same idea, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the book that she sent was called The Crossroads Between Should and Must and the things that, you know, we should be doing, and, but really the things that we must be Wait, doing. Wait, did she write that book? No. Oh, she sent it to yeah, you. Yeah, it was just kind of a gift. I think she got something yeah. out of the conversation that prompted uh, the sending of that book. And... So that interview with his brother and then that book arrived on the same day for me. And I couldn't explain. And M told, told us, she was like, just read it now. Like, don't wait. And so I did. And so there was this really strong emphasis in, in, in my own life of looking at what is, you know, my must. What is the mm -hmm. thing that's most essential to me? You know, what, what is it? What is, what is it? I mean, I wouldn't say I was asking questions like, what does it all mean? But I was asking like, you know, somebody who's guilty of a lot, do, wanting to do a lot of different things and explore a lot of different areas. Like there was an element of, you know, I think that's where the, the kernel of sacrifice came in. And yeah, then, what am I willing to cut out? Right. 
but so part of that is at the beginning of this year, it was like, well, I don't know. Do I know myself well enough? Do I know, do I know my values well enough? Do I know what I, re- what, what, mm. what I represent, what I believe in, and what this all means, or at least my, my point of view on that? So, you know, I don't have an answer as far as I would say that there is something, I don't know, when you, as you talk about, like, let's say the Holy Ghost, I don't know even what that means uh-huh. necessarily, but I'm on a journey, I guess, trying to find out the things that I represent and the, the thing that is the meaning for me, I would say. You yeah, know? Yeah, and you so when you, you think can't about, figure out what to cut and what to keep until you know what it is you're trying to achieve, right? And you're in that phase In the right biggest now. sense, I would say, in, yeah. not in, in the most meaningful mm-hmm. sense, mm-hmm. yeah. God, I love that. Uh, my, the most meaningful TED Talk I've still, to this day, ever seen is uh, one by a guy named Clayton Christensen. He was, he's a Harvard business professor. Mm. And he, the title of the talk is something like, how will you measure your life or something mm, like that? And it's on this, it's on this topic. Yeah. And his whole point is like, it's really easy to get that short-term dopamine hit uh, to feel good because you put in an extra hour at work and you got a slap on your back. Hey, good job. You published that paper. You gave a talk. You gave, you know, it's really easy to get those kudos. But in the long term, I think we're going to have an interview with our maker. And I don't think he's going to ask us a single question about all the science I did <laughs> or the, the YouTube stats or downloads. He's going to ask, you know, were you kind? You know, were you honest? Did you help people? Mm-hmm. When you were in this situation, how did you help these people that were there? Or did you ignore them, right? That's his, the, the, the premise of his talk. Like, how yeah. will you measure your life? Will it be meaningless business metrics? And I think this is important because no matter how big you are in your career, however, however much you, emphasis you place in it, the second you retire, man, that right. void will be filled. You will be gone and forgotten. It doesn't matter how good you were. It's not lasting, mm-hmm. but being a good person, being kind, helping people, unlocking you know potential in your kids or friends or whatever—that's yeah. lasting. Mm-hmm. The, poten- the word potential is, uh, it resonates. You know, it's it's w- how well did you reach your pot- your potential and enable help others, enabling yeah. others. Mm-hmm. I always find a lot of these self help books are focused on how do you help <laughs> how do you help me, but mm-hmm. how about helping others? Right. But uh, but I mean I don't. I don't know if we need to want to move on, but I think the essence of that quote, by the way, I see in you, Josh, a lot already, mm. right? Because your because of your desire to like explore, explore, uh, curiosity. I mean, it's already there. The foundation, of course, that extra sacrifice and honing in on maybe then making some of those difficult more difficult decisions is maybe still where you're headed, mm. but actually the spirit of what you do you know, exploring and um, journaling and all of those things are all about getting, just finding more meaning in life than, than I think I do often and then and then many other people don't either. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. Now, I know this is about material. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's not about material. <laughs> no, I, I, I could a, care less. It's a fun it conversation. It was about yeah. you. Um, I had a thought the other night about, I don't know if we want to go down this avenue though, and it was related to one of my brothers who was talking about this, but I think we too often, this is going to be say that sound the opposite to what we've just said, but I'm not sure if everyone in this world, although we all want to get to our potential, that's for sure. But I'm not sure if we always have to find 
the purpose that we all like there's a lot of pressure yeah. on everyone to find your purpose find your purpose i think that's totally true i want i want to find that and i think you want to find that i think millions of people do but some people are actually relatively okay with where they're at and they don't need yeah. to go and kind of do something significantly different i don't know that's my hypothesis that not everyone should feel pressured to kind of go and do that because there's a lot of people that talk about you've got to find your purpose you know yeah so i, don't I know. agree it is more important for some than others and that's okay like if yeah. you're a guy that just wants to get a job and you know have a cold drink and a pretty wife and happy kids like that's great like what's wrong with that yeah. um if you want something different there's nothing wrong with that either yeah it's interesting <laughs> where do we go from here Josh? i don't know but can i just say one other thing that i i because i don't want to get this mixed up because i shared a lot about myself i don't think it was necessarily i there there is part of me that's exploring i guess what yeah, there's always the exploring of, I guess, what is my purpose. But there, I think that there's been an element of, at some point, maybe it coalesced, kind of came together through the the interview and through getting that book, that maybe it felt like I betrayed my purpose somewhere along the way. Mm. And that's where it kind of came down to, like, looking at, well, what 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 is it that I really, truly value? And what what, what as a result, how am I behaving in, in relationship to those values? Like, at some point, maybe I got off track somewhere and I was really trying to understand, like, am, have I acted in a way that was contradictory to what mm -hmm. I thought my, you know, was the thing that's meaningful to me, where I'm headed in. And, I think and, you'd be in good company. Like, that's like the human condition, yeah, right? Is yeah. to constantly error, yeah. right? To, even if it's not like a big mistake, it's to readjust. We, we're constantly right. course correcting towards what is valuable mm. to us. Yeah. And it's... It takes time. Yeah. Well, a short time for some, maybe, but, but most of us, it might take a long, lot longer than we want. Yeah, yeah. As long as we keep adjusting and kind of seeing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, I, honestly, I don't think we've ever had this kind of a discussion oh, up no. to date up on this podcast. I think we wanted to, though, didn't we? I, th I think so. I think, yeah, somehow it came out. And <laughs> I, I hope more of this happens. And, and I, But I don't know. I, so I want to bring it back now, okay. um, back to... Um, you know, there, oh, there was this line that you used in your TEDx talk that I uh -huh. thought was just brilliant and I loved. It was, um, oh, what was it? Uh, something serendipity. Oh, yes. Yeah. Unlocking rational serendipity. Yes. And calculated, and calculated luck. luck. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the promise of machine learning, right? Yeah. Of materials informatics. So for to step back and yeah. explain this a little bit, Please. we've been talking about accidental discoveries, right? Mm -hmm. And so it took Charles Goodyear's whole life and his impact on his family, like to make that one discovery. Mm -hmm. And so the rate of discovering new materials has to accelerate. We can't do that one at a time, mm -hmm. slow method. But, you know, on the other end, if you were just to try things, helter-skelter shotgun approach, just try everything, go and just kitchen sink at the lab, the vast majority of those are will not going to give you anything useful. So there's got to be a meaningful middle ground between just relying on accidents and this design of experiment, which is just too massive to actually be implemented. Mm -hmm. So we need rational serendipity, meaning serendipity that we can actually sort of influence. We can get something that feels like luck because it's too good to be true, mm -hmm. and we can control that to happen in a way that is systematic or calculated luck. Right? We, can, we can weigh the, 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 what is it, the dice in our favor a little bit. So more often than not, even though we're looking in a large experimental space, mm -hmm. we're getting hits more often than we ought to. The way that machine learning does that is through predictions, right? It's just statistics. Statistics is all about probabilities, right? So if I told you you can test these 10 new material compositions 
And they all have like 1% chance of being successful. But this one at the end has 5%. Like, of course you would try that one first. But that's all that machine learning is. Mm. It's just saying that of all these other ones, none of them look great, right? But this one looks better. Or maybe of all these ones, like these all look terrible, but one looks really promising, right? And the real benefit is that machine learning can do this uh, fast, first off, because statistics is typically pretty quick. So it's not requiring supercomputers. And then the other example is that it's, what I like about it is that it's learning from previous examples. Like this is like humans. Like we've learned from our, you know, I've, all, everything around us we've seen before and it's impacted our next decision, right? Mm -hmm. We learn from our, our environment. This is allowing materials discovery to have that same advantage where you let it have all the previous information. You spent 20 years working on something great, like codify that data, put it in a way that the algorithm can access it and learn from it the same way you have. Because me as a researcher, like I know, I could think of right at the top of my head, like a couple compositions that look intriguing because I've studied like their neighbors and things like them and think, oh, maybe that would be the one to look at next. Well, we can systematize that with mm. machine learning. We can allow it to learn from all that. Like, the way I think of it, like imagine that you had like some 80-year-old brilliant scientist who spent 80 years in the lab working on something. If that person reached over your shoulder and said like, oh, try this material. I've got a, that one might work. I've got a feeling about that one. You would try it. Yeah, absolutely. That's what the machine learning algorithm can do for us. It, it can take all this information. It can organize it in ways that our human minds can't because maybe talking about many, 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 many parameters and high dimensional space for us is like hard to capture. You know, one dimensional space, two dimensional we can capture. Many dimensions is hard. It can find those trends in large amounts of data and make suggestions so that you weight the dice in your favor. You try things and more often than not, you're getting hits. It's way better than random search. Mm -hmm. So it's exciting. Yeah. I, I, I thought, I mean, just even from, from, from the talk, it, I mean, it, the idea of, you know, what machine learning, and I mean, you just explained it, for the, but machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence is doing towards this idea of these accidental discoveries and accelerating this process. And I remember even that graph, when you showed that graph, there were those two little dots, uh -huh. right? It was so powerful. It was so powerful. Just seeing the, the scale of it, the information even, right? Yeah, from and, hundreds of thousands right. of points. And, and you said you had done that in like 30 seconds, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah. I almost wanted, I, like, if I look back, I, like, I thought, um, like, I, that, that line, I guess, is just so powerful for me. Like, I kind of wanted to, I want to see that as like, I wanted to see that as the title of your talk or something. I didn't love the title I picked, if I'm honest with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, book. What, if, the if, title if, of a future book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is a great idea. Yeah. Your book. Would you write a book? Are you? I don't know, because I don't think the books are... I, I think, like, my educational content is just on yeah. YouTube anyways. Maybe I'll name my YouTube playlist that or something. But, like, no, I, I don't know if I'll write a book at some point. Maybe, like, as I'm getting older, for, like, do, like, a biography, tell, like, your life story, I'd put, consider it. But now for right now, I'm too busy. Yeah. That, that would take up too much time <laughs> yeah. from other things I want to do, and I Can't don't think there's enough value. Yeah. yeah, people don't read books anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell Greg. <laughs> they listen to podcasts. They listen to and then the, And then they buy books. It's That's true. true. They do listen to books. <laughs> After they, I'll say I don't listen to books anymore <laughs> or read books. Um, no, yeah, and uh, I don't know that area well enough to even ask. I think good enough questions. Yeah. But I think it's very fascinating. I would love to know from your perspective. Like, I want to try to jump back into the like, your podcast a little bit. But the so the future of of, of material science and yeah. and you, you hint at it a little bit in your talk as well. But like. What, what do you see the future looking like? Um, you know, you, you reference like the things that Elon Musk are trying, you know, trying yeah. to do, building his 
uh, underground tunnel with the boring company and just, I mean, with people going to space right now, CEOs yeah. going to space, like, I don't know, like from a material perspective, I guess, like, yeah, what, what, what do you see? And what you're trying to, I mean, that's the yeah, same that's thing as the challenge in the state, like what is, how is this cha challenge in the status quo yeah. for the future? Um, I, mean, I, I, I really love, I remember now the feeling I had when you spoke about that, that moment of the machine learning. I mean, it is, it is exciting. It's about scale. It's about getting, yeah. getting to places we could have never imagined yeah. much sooner than we maybe have been even alive. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious to know an example around that. But anyway, you asked the no, question. Yeah. I think I agree well, I, with you. What I, does the future look like? So uh, one of the early pioneers in material science, it's only been around since like the 50s. I mean, the discipline's been stayed a long time, but like the formalized discipline, it's not that old. Yeah. And one of the early guys who found that it died recently, and before he died, they asked him, what's the future of material science look like? And he's like, I can answer that easily. It looks different. And I think that's, mm. <laughs> it's, it's a better answer than you might give it credit for because when I think of material science, it's about challenging uh, boundaries. Like for example, 20 years ago, lithium-ion batteries were not a thing. It was lead acid, and then it was like nickel hydride. It was, it was different things, but somebody way before the, like really far afield from the application was trying things that are really hypothetically interesting, and so they started thinking about lithium-ions. In the same way today, lithium-ions are everywhere. They're, they dominate batteries right now, but in the, in the field of material science, what are they looking at is different. They're looking at sodium-ion batteries because it's radically cheaper Sodium's tricky because it's bigger, so the kinetics are sluggish. Like, lithium-ion's so small, it can just slide right. It makes for a good battery. Sodium's bigger, but it's cheaper, right? But mm. that's the thing that we're looking at. Or we're looking at divalent uh, batteries. So instead of lithium, which has one charge, which makes it, you know, efficiency of one, you could say, right? If you take a, an, an ion like magnesium, which is two plus, every time that the magnesium ions, you get, like, twice the benefit, right? So there's people working on these divalent systems, zinc and magnesium. So th to, to answer your question, it's, mm -hmm. it's something you haven't even thought of before. It's, you, it hasn't crossed your mind. Science fiction writers have thought of it, right? The first person who, you know, the, the 3D printing, right? That was a science fiction article. They talked about waving a wand and then the material materializing afterwards. That is now modern day 3D printing, right? So I think when you say, what does it look like? You got to really imagine something that right now is completely impossible. You can't just think incremental. You can't think mm -hmm. like, today we have a car, that an electric car that goes 300 yeah. miles. Tomorrow it'll go maybe 400. You gotta think like radically different, like a, a car that will charge in real time so it has, you never have to charge it. Mm -hmm. the, the sun or the, a fuel cell or something will give it power in real time. Mm -hmm. That's what material scientists are after. It's, it's unlocking things that really do sound like science fiction. And so if you talk to researchers in this field, they're doing things when you actually get them to explain it. They'll tell you like the field and it'll be something you're familiar with. But if you drill down into what they're working on, more often than not, it's really out there. Yeah. And that's why, you know, maybe it takes five, 10 years that the development process can be long. But when it shows up, it's completely transformational. Just like lithium-ion batteries, like they are the best battery on the market right now in so many applications. Um, and it, they started in like what, 1990, right? Sony was doing this a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, what's exciting is that these things are gonna—they—they're not going to take forty years to get there. Well, the whole I mean, some point some, right some, now some is we got to shorten that timeline, right? And it is happening, though, right? Yeah, right. So machine learning could be a really big, big yeah. important part of that because instead of relying on decades and accidental discoveries to get there, maybe you can really shorten that timeline to get to that interesting system. And then we take our old tools of system optimization, material science—you know, understanding microstructure and scale and defects mm -hmm. and all these things that we know how to do as a field. I don't know how to accelerate that part dramatically yet. Um, maybe there's some ideas of mixing computational. I, I, my colleagues would criticize me for that. Like, I think that there are some things there. But the point is we can shorten that timeline by moving away from the sequential, like come up with an idea, test it, find an interesting system, like 
go after funding, like go after a, like a, a slightly larger pilot scale system, test it in relevant environments. Yeah. Like this is so slow. We've got to do it way faster than that. Yeah. So how exactly to do that? I don't know if I have all the answers there. I think machine learning and data science will be a part of it just because it's so dang fast. It just yeah. replaces my time. When I think of like how, how I used to do science, this is way faster. I'm getting hits more often with this technique. Now, how do you shorten the rest of the timeline? Testing it in relevant environments, testing safety, testing, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I have all the answers to that. We, we interviewed one of the, for, well, a little while ago, um, the head of design for the future of Bentley. Oh, really? And um, of course, hugely important is their materials that they use, not just inside the car, but I, mean, I was thinking, I used to work for GE many years ago, and they were looking at materials of how do you make a car uh -huh. paintwork that is scratch resistant completely uh -huh. like it gets scratched and it kind of fills in the gap you know uh -huh. um but instead of talking about kind of you know the cool things out there what would you say what do you believe the biggest problems are that need to be solved um, that, that, you know that, what's fascinating yeah. The biggest problem that we need to solve, I, I'd say climate change and environment is a very big problem. I know it's the biggest. It's a very big one. And you know what is just maddeningly infuriating is that we already have the solution. We, we were spending billions of dollars. We are, the whole world is obsessed with finding a solution to climate change. And it's right in front of us. It's nuclear power. And it is like so ridiculously obvious that it is the path forward. And I know that there's criticisms. They're not like ones that you can just discard out of hand. Like they are worth considering the, the criticisms of it. But on a balance, it is so obvious that it is the path forward. So it's frustrating to see all my peers like freaking out, trying so hard and society in general, like panicked about this when the solution is right there, it's mm. right there. It is a extremely robust technology that is, you know, my, my PhD advisor, he, he would say regularly that science is given. He wasn't, he was, I don't think a, a religious person at all, but he said science has given man three great blessings and gifts. One is the PN junction, right? So that's the heart of every transistor, solar sentinels, um, is a technology and materials called a PN junction. It's two different types of materials. When you put them together, that junction okay. does some magical stuff. That's how, that's where you get the electricity out of solar panels. That's how you, anyways, PN junction. Um, nuclear fission, right? Which is also, and the third one I can't remember. And it killed me. And I asked him once about it. And he's like, oh, I don't remember. <laughs> so kind of in that point. But yeah, I think that nuclear power and the PN junction, man, holy smokes, you'd be hard pressed to find two more impactful, important discoveries. And one of them is just sitting there, not unused, but way underutilized. It's potential to move us towards a, you know, as much energy as any of us would ever need with tiny, you know, tiny amount of pollutants afterwards basically zero CO2 and very small amounts of pollutants mm -hmm. is a no-brainer. And we've gotten so safe with them, it, it's hard to see it be demonized. And it's, you know, it's tough for me as a, it's hard to not assume that it's because there's just lobbying involved, right? There's big oil and gas, but there's also big green energy. And, you know, it, this would impact everybody. And so it's hard mm -hmm. to see that uh, what I see as such an easy solution just get left by the wayside. Yeah. I don't know. Talk to somebody else and they'd give you arguments why it's a I've bad idea. I've heard that argument many times. Like, I lean that way. I, I've got a, a... It's good to hear somebody You know, like somebody who I really it. admire is Mike Schellenberger. And he was... He wrote this book called um, Breakthrough, which in 2008, I think, came out. And it was all about basically saying, like, the future's coming and the future's renewable. That's going to solve all of our problems. We just have to embrace it. And it's been so cool. This guy, he and his co-author, Ted Nordhaus, I think have... I don't know. I haven't... You know, I'm not close to this person. I haven't asked... But I assume they've gone different directions because Mike Schellenberger's gone all towards renewable will never scale. It 
like think of solar panels, even if like it's covering up huge spaces, right? It's very expensive. It has a lot of waste and pollutants actually involved in it. And that's not just solar. It's, it's windmills, same thing, whether it's chopping up birds or whatever else. Mm-hmm. He's like, he, he makes the argument that an environmentalist should be the most convinced that nuclear power is the way to go. Like mm-hmm. there is no other argument. And it's been fun to see him, you know, I've followed his work over the years, move from the biggest green tech fan to now the biggest nuclear fan. So I can't remember how this question started, but when it comes to like <laughs> material science. Well, problems that need to be solved. Yeah, right? I mean, that's where we started. That, that's, uh, that's a problem that needs to be solved and the, and the solution exists. The solution, well, the problem now is public adoption. We need to convince people that this is the right path. And that means, you know, every time that there's a movie where a nuclear reactor breaks and a mutant arises, it means that that's misinformation. Like that's actual misinformation because people believe that. If you were to ask mm-hmm. people here in this building, if a nuclear meltdown happens, Will it produce mutants, right? I bet 90% of the people would say, yeah, it probably would, which is crazy. Like, that's what we're up. That's, that's the problem we need to solve. Yeah. It's not necessarily a technological one yeah. in that case. It's a public information one. Yeah. That's fine. Probably got some, like, one or two rapid-fire questions and one last thing. But what do you have? No, I was about to before say the same up. thing. I, I, so before we do a, a little rapid-fire, yeah. I just want to ask you, is there... Um, with all the things that you're passionate about, all the things that you're interested in, is there something that you don't get the chance to talk about mm. as much as you would like to? Understanding that we're also wrapping up, but yeah, like, I don't know. Is there a good way to also ask that is, is that like, is there a question that we should have asked you that we didn't? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I, yeah. I'm an open book. I tell everyone I'm thinking all the time. I have no filter. So <laughs> if I had a thought, you heard it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I don't know if to go to that this place. I, I was just since I listened to your talk originally, and then of course you know more recently preparing for today, I like you start noticing material everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of curious to know any your favorite material, maybe, or one that you're most excited about innovations around. But 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 ultimately, I, I was even thinking about like your your thoughts, kind of how do you do you think on a regular basis about how the world was created, kind of how materials have been. I mean, ultimately, everything is 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 it links back to um, maybe not how the world yeah, created, no. but I do <laughs> constantly find myself connecting history with the history of materials. Right, they're so intertwined. Whether that is like in warfare or agriculture, energy, it's been fascinating to see how those things are intertwined. So yeah, that's always definitely on it's my all mind. Materials, any exci- most exciting material or the one that's being uh, I'm a, innovating? You know, I'm on? an OG sucker for ceramics, and in the field of ceramics, there is so many cool things happening. They they are like magic. They are brittle and hard to you know person who doesn't know them well. They just suck. They're hard to make. They're hard to work with. But in terms of functionality, what they can do, it's unreal. You've got materials like that that can be you know magnetic but also what's called piezoelectric meaning when you apply an electric field to like a battery it shifts like it strains mm-hmm. and then you get materials that are at the junction of those where when you apply a magnetic field it will shift it will it'll strain like you can get just these are called multiferroics um i'm psyched about those i don't really work on those very much i just love learning and following them because when i think of the future and like star trek crazy technologies and gadgets yeah. it's the things that those things can unlock, those functional materials, which are pretty rad. That's cool. Where, where did you serve your mission? Argentina, Bayalanca. Argentina. Good stuff. I love this yeah, he's, chat. You, so you didn't talk about your mission at oh, all? Oh, I was in South Africa. Wow. I, I, I was there when uh, Nelson Mandela was voted as president. Wow. Uh, so back all, back, all, all those years ago. <laughs> Very cool. So. 
Well, yeah, this has been wonderful. I mean, I, I loved it. Yeah, and I appreciate you spending the time with us. I do want to say, like, I think there's an entire episode for us to do at some point in the future on the idea of, let's say, I'm fascinated by that, the, the science fiction component, the, the yeah. really out there thinking, you know, and and building your way into it. And I could probably ask you an hour's worth of questions <laughs> just on, I guess, the, the science fiction-y, visionary kind of part of, you know, ultimately discovery and... Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, and, and that long journey to kind of like what ultimately what we've been talking about as far yeah. as like envisioning the future and kind of backing your way into it. You yeah. Know? And and mm. I would love to have that science fiction kind of discussion with you at some point. But also, how do we make that science fiction reality for various different things and various different examples? But I, 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 I think that's, that would, that's that, another that would, time. That would be that would be great. Yeah. yeah. But I think this, you know, some of the highlights from this just this conversation just on on building momentum and creation yeah. and curiosity and the, the test and learn loops and constantly learning, right? Yeah. Uh, learning mm -hmm. is actually helping yeah, yeah. keeping things going, the momentum, the movement of, 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 of growing something that can actually change the world. But yeah, it'd be great to go into that future state. Yeah, And I know that's what we're gonna be talking about a few of the, or other guests around that as well soon. Yeah. So as we, as we wrap up again, yeah, thank you so much. Is there, yeah, just, do you want to shout out your, your podcast? Do you want to shout yeah, out your YouTube I, channel or anything so else? Huge. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, this yeah. has been a really fun conversation. Um, if you're interested in material science, we have a podcast called materialism. I do my very best to make it accessible to a broad audience. Now there, there'll probably be topics. My wife, my mom both complain that they don't understand what I'm talking about on some of them. And maybe that will be the case, but give it a shot. Uh, I think you might be inclined, uh, you might be surprised at how much you can actually get out of because we do try and break it down to really simple subjects um so give that a listen and then the youtube's probably more for people that are you know wanting to study material science uh so check out it's just taylor sparks on youtube very cool and i'll say just for the sake of the podcast uh the po the first episode i ever listened to uh on the podcast was about i think it was photographic film oh yeah it was that was that episode uh, but I was scanning through some of your episodes as well. There's an episode on what sank the Titanic. Yeah, right? yeah. We've done a cool series on failure. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Right. So yeah. there was the wildfire in California a couple okay. years ago, the Titanic, the Challenger. We're doing one on that soon, the Challenger shuttle no that exploded. Way. These were all materials failures that had like catastrophic implications. So yeah, it's a fun series. Wow. You cool. heard, have you ever heard of the uh, Museum of Failure? Where's this? It's, um, it's actually now a mobile museum that will move around Europe, but oh, there's gosh, a certain individual. I have to find the name, but he, they just show products that failed. But I mean, ultimately, I could imagine, you know, really interesting to see what dozens of materials have led to kind so of cool. huge failures. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank yeah. you so much. Lots of wrap. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Taylor. All right. Thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Swell Podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe. And if you did enjoy the podcast, please be sure to leave a review. Uh, and get involved in the conversation on all the major socials at The Swell Pod. We'll see you next time. Thank you.